Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So you're probably familiar with the battles of World War II fought in the European and Pacific theaters thanks to shows like Band of Brothers or Pacific on HBO. But what a lot of people don't know is that there was a part of World War II that was fought just off the coast of the United States. Uh, And the thing was, it was between civilians and the German U-boats. And my guest today on the podcast has written a book about this often forgotten part of World War II history. His name is William Giroux. He's the author of the book, The Matthews Men, Seven Brothers in the War Against Hitler's U-Boats. And it's about the war fought between the U.S. Merchant Marine and Hitler's U-Boats that often happened, like I said, right off the coast of the United States. What a lot of people don't know is that the merchant, merchant mariners, they were civilians. They weren't actually soldiers, but they had some of the highest casualty rates during World War II as they were shipping supplies to soldiers across the war. And they even got in the war, involved in the war before the U.S. were in the war as they were shipping supplies to Great Britain, our ally. A really fascinating podcast. We also get into the title of the book, The Matthews Men, because as we'll see, there was this county in Virginia that supplied a huge amount of the merchant mariners that took part in World War II. In fact, one family, there was eight members, male members of the family that were merchant mariners. Uh, We'll discuss what life was like as a merchant mariner, what life was like as a U-boat, not very pleasant. And uh, yeah, you'll have a lot of uh, cocktail party campfire fodder after this show. And just to give you a heads up, my connection with my guest on Skype was a little spotty um, when I was doing the interview. So there is a little bumpy noise to the podcast. We've done our best to edit it as possible to clean it up. But just to just give you a heads up about that. And to let you know also, I'm about to release and about to be able to do recordings with a platform that I developed that will allow me to do remote recordings, remote interviews, while maintaining pristine audio quality. I'm really excited about it. And hopefully it'll up the podcast up even more. So I uh, appreciate your support and your patience. And uh, when you're done listening to the show, make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash Matthews. And that's one T, not two. William Giroux, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. So your uh, book is called The Matthews Men, and it's about uh, the U.S. Merchant Marine during World War II and this war that they had with German U-boats. Uh, that happened really close to the United States, and it's something that a lot of people don't know about. But before we get into that, let's talk about the the Merchant Marine itself, because I think people, a lot of people have heard of it, the Merchant Marine, but don't know exactly 
what they did or what they do. Uh, so what is the U.S. Merchant Marine and why do we not really know much? Why does the public not know much about it? Well, they, uh, they don't know much about it. And the uh, part of the reason is the Merchant Marine is, uh, is really now is just a shadow of what it once was. So it's not very much in the public eye anymore. But the Merchant Marine, it, it's, the name is confusing. It sounds like a branch of the military. But it's not. It's a. It's really sort of a loosely organized group of civilians, uh, private citizens, mariners who sail ships normally for commercial purposes, you know, on cargo from port to port. But in in World War II, and in really in any times of war throughout the history of the United States, the merchant marine really, you know, start becomes sort of an adjunct to the military. It, it hauls war supplies. It's the supply line. And in World War II, that was uh, very important. It was, uh, they were really, they hauled everything that the Allied troops needed to survive and fight on, in foreign battlefields. I mean, everything from fuel to guns, ammunition, planes, tanks, uh, jeeps, trucks, food, uh, bug repellent, uh, medical supplies, everything. They were the, the supply line. And this is where this is why they were such uh, big targets for the the Germans during World War II. Yes, the the, uh, the the U-boats. Their mission was to try to to cut that supply line because the Germans knew that if America could uh, project its industrial power across the ocean, um, the Germans were were doomed. They weren't going to. The Third Reich was was not going to survive it. So they they. The U-boats were their way of, uh, that was really the most effective part of the German Navy, was the U-boats, and that was that was their mission, to cut the supply line if they could. Well, yeah, and that was another interesting thing, I mean, I've, I've heard of German U-boats, um, but I didn't really know much about them, except that they were sort of submarines, but sort of not. I mean, what exactly is a U-boat? Because it's not, it, it can go underwater, but it's technically not a submarine. Correct. It's not a submarine the way we think of uh, submarines today, the nuclear subs, the, the big ones that can stay underwater for months at a time without even communicating with the outside world. The new boats were, they were, you know, diving vessels. They performed much better on the surface, but they were able to submerge for brief periods of time to conduct attacks or to try to escape um, pursuers. And they, there's sort of a mystique about U-boats, that they were these, you know, the ultimate weapons. But one of the things I try to do in the book is to show that they really had a lot of weaknesses and vulnerabilities. They were, uh, uh, they were slower than a lot of the, you know, most of the warships that hunted them. And if they got driven underwater, if they were located by sonar or radar and driven underwater to, uh, to try to escape, they were pretty helpless. And they were dependent on the, uh, the wiles, the trickery of the U-boat commander to, to try to outwit the, their pursuers and figure out a way to get away from them. And if they didn't, they would uh, the U-boat would be destroyed often by depth charges and sent to the bottom, uh, often with all hands. Right. I guess the, the, you mentioned in the book that U-boats had some of the highest casualties uh, during the war. Yes. Once the Allies uh, uh, figured out or got the you know the technology and the tactics and the experience to uh, to deal with them and really were able to go after them, um, uh, the predators, the U-boats, quickly became the prey. And by the end of the war, it was a suicide mission basically to go out in a U-boat. They were they were you know they were hunted. They were 
their effectiveness was completely gone, so much so that uh, the head of the U-boat command, Admiral Carl Dunitz, um, considered at one point just pulling them out of the war zones because they were just getting slaughtered. But they, they ultimately decided, he ultimately decided that if they did that, the Allies, you know, the Allies were devoting a great deal of um, people and uh, weaponry to to control them. And if they were gone, the Allies could apply that weaponry elsewhere. So they, they kept them in the field basically to occupy the, you know, the, the enemy. And uh, it, it enormous losses to, to themselves. And yeah, you describe life on a U-boat and it sounded absolutely horrible. Like, it was like, I don't know why anyone would want to sign up to be a, 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 a member on a U-boat. It was, it was brutal. I mean, the, the air was foul. The food was often rancid. The, um, the U-boat was so cramped that the men literally slept on torpedoes that were stored under their bunks. And the, uh, all the U-boat's operating systems were so exact and so demanding that everything had to be done you know, to a certain way, a certain sequence, and any deviation from that would doom the U-boat. And that even extended to the U-boat's toilets. And if you, uh, there's one, at least one example that I, I described in the book where an improperly flushed toilet um, ended up sinking a U-boat. Yeah, I thought that was that was really, I thought that was, I mean, it was funny in a sad, sad way. Um, so this is, uh, so the U-boats, part of the mission early on in the war, um, even before America was, uh, you know, officially in the war, the, uh, the U S merchant Marine started engaging with these U-boats. So what was the U S merchant Marines, merchant Marines, uh, role in world war two, even before the United States had actually officially declared war? Well, um, the British were, um, they were suffering terrible losses from the U-boat. Of course, Britain is a, an island nation. They depend on, the, on shipping to basically to supply everything. And the U-boats were, were really hurting them. They were sinking uh, British merchant ships and killing British mariners uh, faster than they could be replaced. So Winston Churchill asked uh, uh, President Franklin Roosevelt for help, and Roosevelt um, Found different ways, uh, short of being in a war, to uh, to to help them. And one of those ways was using the you know, mobilizing the merchant marine, uh, the U.S. merchant marine, to deliver goods to the British. And uh, at the beginning of the war, Hitler, um, uh, or when he was first approaching the war, he wasn't in that big of a hurry for us to join the war. He had invaded Russia, and he, he really had a lot of had all the enemies. He really uh, more enemies, really, than he, than he could use at that point. So he was, uh, even though it was clear to everybody, and particularly the U-boat commanders, I mean, they had to look through their periscopes at these American ships and see them delivering, you know, breaks, basically breaking their blockade and not be able to do anything about it for political reasons. Um, because Hitler said, don't, you know, do not sink American ships yet. You know, we're just, you know, we'll just, we'll suffer the consequences of letting them deliver supplies. And, uh, so this went on for, for quite some time, but America got you know more and more into it, and pretty soon our, our uh, warships were helping to escort the big convoys across the North Atlantic, and the U-boats started um, sinking some of our ships, some of our uh, you know destroyer and some a number of merchant ships. And at first Hitler uh, 
would apologize. You know, he'd, he'd say, oh, it was a mistake. But after a while, it just he just quit bothering to apologize. And we were just slowly getting further into the the war before we were actually in it. And uh, for some people, that were the people that lived on the East Coast, it was a surprise that we got into the war uh, because of something that happened in the Pacific rather than what was going on in the Atlantic because it was clear that we were moving ever close to it. And the, you know, the merchant mariners were on the front lines of the European war for months before we had like troops in the fields against the Germans. They were the front lines for uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, 1942. And and again, they weren't actually members of the military. They were civilians, right? And they were yes. facing the brunt of this uh, un, like unofficial war that U.S. had, had entered uh, against Germany by being an ally of, of Great Britain. Yes. And they were the, they were the, really the, the tip of the spear, although they really didn't have much of a spear. Most of the, or really any, they, uh, most of these merchant ships were, a lot of them at the beginning of the war were, they were old, you know, they'd been built during World War One, and they were, uh, they were slow, they were ploddingly slow, they were, a lot of them were overloaded with stuff that they were never designed to carry, and they were, they were pretty much unprotected. Um, they were sent out on the, on the hope that they would get where they were going without encountering a U-boat, because if they did, they were, they were sitting ducks. And, uh, so it, this went on for for quite some time. You know, some of the the, the ships were armed with. They, the Navy would install gun tubs on these merchant ships, and they put Navy gun crews on there to man them. But, but through no fault of these gun crews, putting a gun tub on a merchant ship was not a good way to protect it from U-boats. And a lot of these Navy gunners died right alongside the merchant mariners when the uh, when ships were torpedoed. There's no record of a, a Navy gun crew ever sinking a U-boat. So at what point did the the Germans um, start sending U-boats near in, into U.S. water? This was the th- thing that was really surprising to me, because we often think, oh, you know, the war really didn't come to America. It was fought into the Pacific and, and Europe. But the German U-boats, they got really, really close to America during World War II. And so at, at what point did um, the Germans start swarming U-boats near uh, American coasts? The first ones came here um, in, in early January, uh, like the second week in January, five of them came here. And uh, they Dunitz, the, the German, the head of the Ju- German U-boat command, wanted to send a lot more, but um, he was Hitler and some of his superiors in the in the German Navy um, didn't want to send that money. They had they many. They had uh, they, the Germans didn't have nearly as many U-boats as they wanted, and Hitler thought they should be deployed here and there. And it, it sort of frustrated uh, Dönitz because he knew that he was a, a, a master of his great gift was was to constantly be shifting the U-boats around into the. Uh, what was whatever the weakest point in the Allied supply line was, he, he kept close track of this and he monitored it. And right after America got into the war, the weakest point by far was the coast of the United States. He wanted to put a lot more here. But anyway, they, they came here in early January and just were ran roughshod. I mean, they were sinking a, a ship a day, and then uh, but they could only stay for so long. They could only stay for a couple of weeks, and they'd run out of fuel, run out of torpedoes. So he would send another wave of them. So he kept really just sending waves of U-boats. And they, you know, they'd stay here a couple of weeks and sink a bunch of ships, and then they'd go back. And 
they range from five to maybe a little over a dozen, you know, over the course of the, uh, the first year of the war when they were really uh, effective before we before we started protecting the uh, the mariners with convoys and started defending our coastline. And I mean, what was surprising is like how close they got. I mean, you describe how there would be uh, members of the U-boat, you know, they'd come to the surface and they'd get out and they could see like the skyline of New York City or see the Ferris wheel at Coney Island. Um, I mean, they were that close. Yeah, I mean, they, yeah they were. I mean, they would be within, there's a, a sunken U-boat less than 20 miles off the coast of, uh, uh, closer to 15 miles off the coast of um, Nags Head, North Carolina, on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, which is a, a big tourist uh, community. And the, the U-boats, uh, they, they sank, they torpedoed ships uh, right within sight of the beach at uh, you know, at Jupiter Inlet, Florida. They torpedoed ships right near the mouth of the Mississippi River. And in uh, in the summer of '42, they even got close enough to um, to land teams of would-be uh, saboteurs on the United States. So they got close enough to send these guys in a raft to the to the beach and to go ashore with the idea that they were going to find a factory to to you know destroy or something. So they they were they were right here. And there was a lot at the time. There was a lot of uh, once it became clear that these U-boats were close. There was a lot of worry in some of these coastal communities and rumors that you know strange lights on the beach at night, or you know there was stories, all of them bogus, about you know strange men's bodies being found with you know German you know stuff in their pocket that identified them as U-boats. But there, that um, you know most of those stories were just. They're just not true, but it was it was sort of a paranoia right along in some of these uh, isolated beach communities. And but you said that the Germans run ran roughshod over uh, American ships, uh, the merchant marine ships, um, and it happened for a long time. And why did it take so long for the U.S. to really do anything about the uh, the U boats that were sinking ships off uh, American coasts? Well, part of it was uh, it was unavoidable. The, uh, the United States was not, uh, despite this buildup, we weren't really prepared for the war when it, uh, you know, when it came upon us, and we didn't have a lot of um, ships and planes to to use to patrol our coasts. We had, you know, we were fighting the Japanese in the Pacific, and we were helping with these big convoys that would leave, you know, on a very regular basis from. Maritime Canada to Britain, and those were still going on, and they they needed protection. But we did have some ships and planes. But the uh, uh, Admiral King, Admiral Ernest King, who had really operational control of the Navy, uh, didn't didn't was hesitant to deploy what we did have to uh, to protect the ships along the coast. And he, you know, he he was just very reluctant to do this. And one of the reasons, I mean, he did think about it, but he felt that he had an idea that once we built enough new warships and planes that we could, you know, have these really powerful, effective convoys, a convoy being, uh, you know, a ring, basically a ring of warships or, and, and an air cover of planes protecting these helpless merchant ships. And once, once we had enough of those to, that we could, Run convoys, then we'd be, yeah, we'd run a really good convoy system. And eventually, we we did. But before that, he was reluctant to run a weak convoy system. He didn't want.
send a convoy out with just a, a few ships that weren't well armed because his thinking was if we did that, we're just making the U-boat's job easier. We're just assembling all the targets for them in one place, and then we can't protect them. But that really wasn't true, and uh, the, the British had already learned this. The British had learned that any protection at all was better than nothing. And in particular in the United States, the only reason the Germans were sending U-boats 3,000 miles across the ocean, U-boats were precious. You know, They needed all they could get. The only reason they were willing to send them this far, the only reason it made sense, is that the kills over here were so easy. You know, they could, if they were in an unprotected stretch of ocean, you guys could just, they were ship sinking machines. They could ship, sink one ship after another. But, uh, so any, anything we had done in those early months to, to make it even a little bit more difficult for them to sink merchant ships would have compelled the Germans to, you know, to re- recalculate the costs and benefits of sending these U-boats all the way over here. So, uh, this went on for quite a long time, and finally Admiral King got the... Got, and, and he was criticized during this time. The British were complaining, you know, why are you, why are we letting all, you know, why are you letting all these ships be torpedoed? A lot of the ships were ultimately on their way to Britain. And the, uh, you know, different people in the, in the military, the U.S. military, were, were, they were noticing this. And they were saying, this is, you know, this can't go on. Can't you do something? And he kept saying, you know, we're doing all we can. We'll get to it. And finally, in about, uh, you know, maybe August of 1942, the convoy system started to take shape, and the torpedoings of merchant ships just dropped immediately. I mean, the numbers just plummeted. And it took uh, a little while for the convoy. There were still a few bugs in it, or a lot of bugs in the system and, and areas that weren't covered. But after, after uh, you know, August of 1942, things got better and better, and by the spring of 1943, the Allies had, they had figured out, they had the, they had what they needed to really defeat the U-boats, and that was, that was really when the tide turned in the, in the U-boat war. I guess they developed new technology, uh, microwave sonar, was it microwave? Uh, microwave radar that, right. that could be carried in planes. Uh, uh, prior to that, a U-boat could, you know, on the surface could just, uh, it was, you couldn't, it, you know, at night, a U-boat commander could surface and they'd recharge the U-boat's batteries. And, or, in, you know, in cloudy weather, they didn't have to worry about being spotted by a plane. But once the uh, planes had radar, they could just, you know, appear without warning out of the clouds in the middle of the night and, uh, and strike a U-boat on the surface. And the U-boats did not have, were not able to detect the planes quickly enough to avoid them. So they, that was when the U-boats started to become sitting ducks. We also had different ships. We had uh, destroyer escorts. We started the American shipyards were just cranking these things out, and they were uh, they were ideal for hunting U-boats. And we had uh, we had little escort carriers, little miniature aircraft carriers that could uh, they had enough planes that they could be like uh, floating airfields and just sail in the middle of convoys and provide air cover uh, as the convoy moved you know, through the ocean. And that was a great advantage because the U-boats, it made it very difficult for the U-boats to do anything. They had to, any time a plane came by, they had to dive because they, you know, they, it took them a while to crash dive. The plane was faster. So, uh, and then they had hunter-killer groups. They had groups that were specifically designed. Their only job was to sink U-boats. And those, 
those groups, it was a, an escort carrier and a group of destroyers. And when they found a U-boat, they could simply sit over it and drop depth charges and, until they sank it. So there was no escape. The U-boat commanders had a hard time outwitting those guys because they didn't, the other killer groups didn't have anything. That, that was their only job was to sink U-boats, and they sank a lot of them. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a long-time podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents, to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. 
Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. So uh, you mentioned that you know the U-boats would torpedo these merchant marine ships, um, and of course there were casualties, but there were typically survivors, um, and people were able to get off the boat before it sank. What happened to the mariners after they were these surviving mariners after they were torpedoed? Well, they would uh, they would go home or make it home and. Uh... Uh, they would go right back out on, uh, many of them would go right back out on other ships. They had uh, 30 days, basically, at the end of a voyage to sign on with another merchant ship. And if they didn't do that, they became eligible for the draft. And, uh, you know, some of these guys, they, they simply didn't want to be in the infantry. They didn't want to be in the army or in the foxholes. But for other men, they, you know, they were... Uh, they were patriotic. They wanted to serve their country, and they were mariners. That's what they did. That you know, that was their life, and they were. Um, so, if they could serve their and the, and the nation needed these guys, it needed them badly. So they would uh, they would sign on again, even though they knew. And I don't think when they were started, I don't think they realized how dangerous it would be. But certainly by a few months in, everybody that signed on to a ship knew that it was uh, it was a very dangerous. Business. A lot of these guys, you know, just went out there again and again. There was one guy that got uh, torpedoed ten times over the course of the two world wars. Because uh, it's even less known that uh, the Germans sent U-boats to American shores in uh, World War One as well. Wow! And so, yeah, I mean, they were able to get back because they, I guess, they would um, to get on survival rafts or lifeboats. And I, what I thought was interesting is that the U-boats would often, you know, they'd come to the surface and they would talk to the merchant marine very like, oh, you know, it's war. You know, we didn't, no, no hard feelings against you, but this is war, you understand. And they'd hand off, you need any cigarettes, you need any whiskey, you need any food. Um, I, I mean, I thought that was just, it was interesting that they, they'd had these conversations with the, the Germans uh, after they got their ship sunk. It was. And to me, I think that was really one of the most surprising things that I discovered doing research on the book. And there were numerous encounters like this. And it, it really depended on the it depended on the character of the U-boat commander. Some of the U-boat commanders were utterly ruthless. You know, they'd sink a ship and leave the guys out there to the you know to the mercy of the sea, which often was was no mercy at all. But other ones, and if you look at the, the reports in the National Archives, you can track and you can see which commanders were not that way, which commanders were, their conscience bothered them. They didn't want to leave these guys out there. Some of these, the, the U-boat commanders had been merchant mariners before the war, and they were dedicated to sinking these guys' ships. That's ships, that's what they were doing. But once you had men that were, you know, their ship was sunk, they were helpless, they were on a raft, a lifeboat, um, some of these commanders, they just couldn't bring themselves to uh, to leave them there to die without offering them some help. 
directly against the orders of Hitler and the U-boat command. Hitler wanted to, thought they should basically machine gun these guys in the lifeboats, do what kill them somehow, because to him, uh, it was not just a matter of sinking ships, but getting rid of these mariners. And he figured, well, if we, if we kill enough of them, then they'll stop sailing. And Dunitz, the head of the U-boat commander, man was a little less cold-blooded, but he, you know, he told these guys over and over again, do not help castaways. Do not help these guys in the lifeboat. You don't have to, you know, go out of your way to kill them, but don't help them. Don't give them food. Don't give them water. But the, you know, let nature take its course. But but a number of these guys didn't. Uh, you know, they just they were they were hundreds of miles, thousands of miles from Berlin. And they were in command of their own U-boats, and they were, you know, they they would do what they thought was right. Yeah, I thought the most interesting exchange was between a um, a U-boat officer, and uh, he he was actually in America, like he lived in America before the war, uh, lived in New York City, and he was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan, and he asked the Merchant Marines, like, how are the Dodgers doing? <laughs> right, right. It's just a, it's just an extraordinary uh, uh, story. And I, I also like the one, there's a, you read this too, where there's one of the guys, uh, one of the book commanders hands over a big 10 gallon jug of drinking water and along with some cigarettes and some canned French cookies and everything. And before he gives them the jug of drinking water, he squeezes fresh limes into the water to introduce vitamin C into the water to, uh, fortify these castaways in the lifeboat against scurvy. A vitamin deficiency disease in the event their lifeboat ends up having to be at sea for a long time. So some of the, some of the stories are just, but you know, again, there are other guys who are just uh, utterly ruthless. And there was one guy who uh, would sink ships uh, and he would approach the men in the lifeboats and subject them to political tirades against uh, President Roosevelt for, for, you know, for getting the U.S. involved in war. He'd say, but ask me for drinking water. Ask Roosevelt. He's the one that put you in this situation, and he wasn't—he wasn't entirely wrong. So let's talk about the Tyler book, Matt, the Matthews Men. Um, the reason why you called the Matthews Men is there, there was a county in Virginia called Matthews County that produced a ton of merchant mariners, and a lot of them were involved in this war, uh, this U-boat war. Why did this particular county in Virginia produce so many mariners and that, that went on to go fight or you know, take part in World War II? Well, Matthews, uh, Matthews County um, had been producing mariners, you know, been like a cradle of sea captains and merchant mariners since before the American Revolution. Um, Matthews is a uh, it's a beautiful place, it's a, but it's a tiny, isolated community on the on the shore of the, clinging sort of to the shore of the Chesapeake Bay. And um, for there's very little in Matthews. It's not on the way to anywhere. There's no big employers there, and job opportunities have always been very scarce there. You were either a fisherman, a waterman, as we call them in that area, or you were a farmer, or you went to sea. And um, Going to sea, you know, all of these all of these men grew up around the water. They all knew how to handle boats, you know, since they were little kids. So they were natural mariners, and they naturally gravitated toward the merchant marine because it was a uh, a, a business where you didn't need a lot of formal education, and you could, you could. But if you worked hard and you knew your stuff, you could rise 
to the top of your profession. And that was a tradition in Matthews. And some families, you know, that was it. You were, your birthright was to become a sea captain. Your father had been one, your grandfather, maybe your great-grandfather. So it was always part of the Matthews, uh, uh, just part of what the community did. And when World War II came, there were a lot of these guys that had, you know, had been in the merchant marine for a long time. And the war created such a demand for mariners that even the guys who were fishermen or were farmers, they were, suddenly there were all these opportunities. The merchant marine needed men, and anybody who knew a bow from a stern just about could get a, a job. And there were some companies even that, that would go out of their way to hire Matthews men because they had a reputation as, as great seamen. So Matthews was, uh, you know, one Matthews guy's put it, he said, you know, we've been doing this for a long time, and when the war came, we just kept doing it, and, uh, you know, the torpedoes just got in our way for a while. So you mentioned that, you know, in some families in Matthews, it was like a birthright, that's what you did, and so you, you talk about, you follow several families throughout the book, but there's one family, the Hodges family, that produced a ton, like a lot of merchant marine. How many men uh, served in the U.S. merchant marine from the Hodges family during World War II? Um, well, there were uh, let's see. six of the the seven brothers were in the merchant were were on ships during the seven. There was a the father, Captain Jesse. He was the patriarch of the family. He he was a, a captain of an ocean going tub. And all seven of his sons uh, went to sea. One of them got hurt and had to go ashore. But several of their, uh, several of the brothers, several of the seven brothers' sons, um, and also went to sea. So I guess there maybe count, them, but maybe a dozen Hodges, and any you know, of the Hodges' daughters would marry mariners. So maybe fifteen members of the Hodges family were at the, uh, at least were on merchant ships during World War II. And uh, did any of them die um, at the hands of a U-boat? Yes. Uh, two of them uh, Two of them were torpedoed within the space of 11 days. Wow. And a couple of the others had very close uh, very close calls, you know, and they were out there the whole time, and they were on special missions, and they went to, uh, yeah, they went to one of them went to Murmansk, which was the worst, you know, the most notorious run of the trip to northern Russia. And uh, others were, you know, they were in the head. They were, uh, one of them went to the, uh, uh, to, uh, a very dangerous mission to supply, to send supplies to the, uh, the island of Malta. And so they were, the Hodges were all over the place during the, during the war, um, many of them in the, in the Caribbean. And are there uh, any descendants of the Hodges family that are still mariners? Or did that sort of dry up that family tradition? Uh, there, there are descendants now who are in the. It's interesting because the merchant marine, um, as far as cargo ships, is, is greatly reduced. But there is still a, a, a number of merchant mariners who are uh, in tugboats, and um, there are uh, several members of the Hodges family who are tugboat captains or tugboat officers, and they're well known in the in the tugboat community now. So they've sort of moved on from cargo ships to, uh, to tugs. And I guess if situations change, they'll, uh, so yeah, the condition, the, the, uh, the tradition is still alive. And I interviewed some of the, uh, a couple of the tugboat guys. Um, so, uh, how many, um, merchant mariners died during world war two? I think you mentioned it was one of the, it had one of the highest casualty rates, correct? 
Yes, there were uh, roughly 9,300 of them. Oh. And that was a, a casualty rate. That the only uh, branch of the military that was even comparable was the uh, was the U.S. Marines. And most of those deaths occurred in in 1942, before the before the convoys uh, were instituted here on the coast. So they were very much concentrated. But it was it was still dangerous uh, to to sail a cargo ship even after the convoys were uh, were in place because U-boats didn't quit attacking. And once they got into the, you know, into the med, and the, the, the German bombers would attack them, and blow them down, and then would kill by bombers. And what happened to the the merchant mariners after the war? Uh, I mean, because this was this, it's, they're sort of an interesting position. They were they weren't officially sailors or soldiers in the navy or whatever, um, but yet they were still taking part in the war in a very uh, in, on, on the front lines. Did they enjoy any of the veterans' benefits, or that happened after World War II, or were they sort of left to their their own devices? They were they were kind of left uh, left out. They, uh, yeah, the Mariners did not. They didn't enjoy it. They weren't welcomed home as uh, as heroes. Uh, they weren't really welcomed home at all. They didn't come home. They, when the war ended, they. Uh, you know, they they were still on their ships. They were bringing troops home, and they after that they were hauling materials over to Europe to uh, and people over to Europe to rebuild the cities that had been shattered by the war. And ultimately, they even brought home the uh, American dead, the uh, whose, whose families wanted them reinterred in uh, U.S. soil. So they were they were basically still out there. They weren't there for the ticker tape parades down the main boulevards of the United States. And they were, uh, they didn't have a lot of, uh, powerful friends in Congress. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt had been a big proponent of theirs, but he died before the war ended. And, uh, he had, uh, asked Congress, you know, to, you know, to, you know, to provide for these guys, do something for them. But Congress did not. And they were left out of the, uh, they were left out of the GI Bill, left out of really all the, most of the benefits for, that veterans had. And they got, some, you know, decades later, but by then a lot of them were, you know, had died or were, were pretty far along in age. And uh, there's uh, there's efforts, there's been efforts from time to time, and there's some now in Congress to, uh, you know, to uh, recognize what they did, and either give them some honorary, uh, you know, recognition or you know, give them some money. But those, that legislation never really seems to go anywhere, which I think is a shame. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I think you mentioned that they finally were able to go to the veterans' uh, hospitals, but this was like by the time they were like these guys were in their eighties or nineties. Yeah, I mean they, they, they that was a little earlier they they got to do that, but 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 uh, and that was that was help to some of them, but it was you know it was a big difference to that versus when you're a, a young man to come home and have opportunities and, and so it was uh, it was pretty you know it was pretty late in the game. And uh, and now now they are now most of these guys are in their uh, their you know their late eighties and early nineties and uh, they, uh, you know it's if somebody did give them some money you know it's not like they're going to buy sports cars or get scammed on the internet you know they might fix the roof or or you know start a college fund for their grandchildren or something but I, and most of these guys at least the Matthews men gave up long ago expecting the government to come back and say, hey, you know, we're, we should have done better by you. We're sorry. Here's here's something. You know, they, they, 
they don't even, I don't even know if they even think that. A lot of the, the guys, some of the guys I talked to said that they, they the one thing they would like is for, for just people in general to know what they did. One of the guys told me, uh, uh, he said, maybe after your book comes out, maybe my grandkids will believe that I did, you know, my stories will believe that I did something useful during the war. But that, you know, that the time for even that is, is growing very short. Uh, when I started working on this book in earnest in, in 2011, there were maybe 12 or 15 uh, old Matthews men who sailed against the U-boats living in and around Matthews. And today, there's maybe five, five or six. And uh, one of my favorite Matthews men, Bill Callis, who's in the book, and he, he was just a real character. And his uh, the last time I interviewed him, he told me, um, he said, you want me to read this book you're writing? You better hurry up and get it written. And I, uh, a couple of weeks later, I went to his funeral. Yeah, yeah, that's really that's one of the sad things is that we're we're losing these World War II veterans um, and individuals who took part in the war like every day. I mean, it's just it's they're shrinking. Um, we are, we are really pr- pretty much approaching the time where any uh, stories about World War II will have to be told through uh, through documents rather than um, talking to people. Yeah. And I, that's why I think it's so important, like what you're doing and what other World War II historians are doing is getting these stories and talking to these men directly so we can get them before before they're gone. So I commend you for that. Um, what's the status of the Merchant Marine today? Does it still exist? It does. It's um, uh, And it's it's sort of a complicated issue. The Merchant Marine, the U.S. Merchant Marine is... Uh, and I, I know this because I worked at uh, Maersk, one of the uh, U.S. subsidiary of Maersk, which is one of the biggest shipping companies in the world. But the um, today, the U.S. Merchant Marine, it, it's much more expensive to operate a ship flying the U.S. flag and employing American mariners um, than it is a, a ships from many foreign countries. The, the pay is higher. The, you know, some of these. Uh, Mariners from third world countries will work for just a, a fraction of what it, what it, you know, what the Americans will. And the, the foreign flagships, they don't have the regulatory and the legal requirements that American ships do. So the, in international trade today, the, the, um, you know, like the, the big freighters, the, um, the, in order to compete for business, because that's, you know, it's a business, it's the shipping business. In order to compete, they have to be subsidized by the government. They have to get, um, you know, they have to be subsidized to keep these ships operating, or they have to be guaranteed cargo uh, by the government. And there's always a lot of debate in Congress about whether this is a good idea, how much do we, you know, do we really need to do this. But the, 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 the best argument is that during war, the military relies on these guys. You know, they, they if it's an American ship, these American ships, they will, uh, and the country needs them, they'll drop whatever they're doing. They'll drop off whatever commercial cargo they've got at the nearest port and report wherever they're told and start hauling war supplies if, you know, if we need to take whatever we need to take it. They've been doing this, you know, really in all the conflicts we've had, even the most recent ones. So the, the nation has an interest in maintaining a merchant marine that it can count on to uh, to do this, and uh, there's a debate going on right now in Congress as to how much of this we should do. So yeah, it's an, an, a national security interest. We should keep this going, yeah. probably. 
Yeah, and if we didn't have one, then we wouldn't be. Right now, the question is, do we have, do we, even now, do we have enough um, American, U.S. flagged ships and American uh, merchant mariners to um, to do what we need to do to, to haul war cargo or military cargo for longer than a few months if we get into a conflict somewhere where we have to put uh, large numbers of uh, troops overseas. Yeah, I think you mentioned there there are there's what there's like eleven thousand registered mariners in the country, but there's only five thousand jobs available or something like that. It's it's a competitive job job field. It is, it is, and uh, and they're good jobs, but they're you know they're getting more and more scarce. And um, it's uh, again the government, uh, most of the cargo ships engaged in international trade now that are U.S. flagged or they're because they're subsidized by the U.S. government for the reason that, uh, you know, as you say, for national security. Well, William, this has been a fascinating conversation. We really just scratched the surface uh, of the book, and we there's so much more our listeners could, um, if they want to d- dive deeper into this topic. Uh, where can people learn more about your book? Um, on my website, which is uh, williamderoe.com. That's W-I-L-L-I-A-M-G-E-R. Ox.com is a, is a good place to start. Excellent. Well, William Giroux, thank you so much. So thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Well, I've enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. My guest today is William Giroux. He's the author of the book The Matthews Men: Seven Brothers in the War Against Hitler's U-Boats, and you can find that on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. And be sure to check out the show notes at aom.is/matthews, and that's Matthews with one T. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And as always, I appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 